If you have your Bibles now, open to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews right in front of you, so you can have that as our gift to you for worshiping with us today. We have been going through Hebrews chapter 11 for a few months now, so we're in one chapter, and we're going through it very slowly, purposefully, because this chapter in your Bible has been called the Hall of Faith. So as you've heard earlier, uh, we call this our faith series, and we're learning about what faith is, obviously, from our Bibles, right? And there's different ways to do that. We can read about it in the Gospels, but the Hall of Faith, the author basically does a survey through the Old Testament, through the Old Covenant, through great saints of old, and highlights them and their faith and points them out so that we could grow in our faith and imitate their faith as well. So this has afforded us the opportunity to look at each of these characters through the verse or verses that they've been given and kind of pause and also pull in more of the Old Testament. And so you just heard Jeff do a great job bringing in that final reading of Israel on his deathbed. Israel's name is also Jacob. So today we're looking at the faith of Jacob from one verse in Hebrews chapter 11. It's verse 21. But this is a little bit of a trilogy of sorts. We've looked at Isaac last week, Jacob, and then next time we'll do Joseph. So I'm going to read all of verses 20 through 22, those three characters, but then hone in today in our sermon sermon on verse 21. To get us started, please just go back to verse 1 of chapter 11 to follow along. I'll give us the definition of faith, then springboard to verse 20, and then drop through those three verses. So follow along, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now our verse for today's sermon. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. I've entitled today's sermon the same as last week, but part two of Faith for the Future, part two. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this great hall of faith, and we thank you for your perfect, inerrant word that speaks to us, and not only do we learn from it, but it exposes our hearts and transforms us and even grants the very faith that it requires, that you require. And so, God, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that this mirror, that you would look into our hearts at the same moment and even change our hearts. And where we see our faith lacking, that you would strengthen our faith. Especially as we look at the end of the lives of these great saints of old, Lord, we would contemplate our own death, our own mortality, and the very end of our own lives. And think about how we would like to live by faith, but, not, but also to die by faith well. Grant us great faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I promised a picture of Back to the Future from the movie, and it didn't come through. So I brought it this week. I have to bring the picture of Back to the Future. But I brought you two pictures. I love the scene in Back to the Future. Well, that's the kind of the title scene here. But do we have the other one from the Enchantment Under the Sea? Here we go. You remember this where uh, Marty McFly is playing the song, Johnny Be Good, right? And he is rocking out on the guitar like they have never heard before. And at the end, he kind of gets down on his knee 
so into it. And at the very end, he's waiting for the applause and it's kind of like, and everyone's just staring at him with that sort of like, what are we supposed to do with this music? And Marty McFly says, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. Yes, you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. And it's a fun trilogy where we travel back in time, basically, where he tries to inadvertently almost loses his own life because he botches things up with his parents. And part two, he goes into the future and tries to fix things up with his own kids. And, And so we talked about this trilogy of time travel and looking into the future. In his case, he is sci fi, like traveling into the future using a DeLorean. We don't have that benefit. We don't have the ability to travel in time, but God, we know, created time, exists outside of time. And in this trilogy in Hebrews chapter 11, these three characters are purposely, we're not just looking at all of their faith throughout all of their life, though we'll bring in some of that for the story today. The author very particularly wants to look at the end of their life as they speak into a future that they don't get to live to see. And says, what does it look like to have faith to speak into the future, to go into a future that you don't get to live to see, but to believe God for promises in that future age, even while you are saying goodbye to your very own life. And so last week we looked at Isaac as he spoke blessing over his two sons. So we looked at uh, Jacob and Esau, right? Well, he picks up today, he looks at Jacob at the end of his life, speaking blessing. Now, at the end of Genesis, he actually speaks over all of his sons, But he's not talking about that blessing over his 12 sons. In particular, do you notice he's speaking blessing over Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, find their way into the short list in the Hall of Faith. We're going to talk a little bit about both of those at the end of his life. But in particular, that's the area that he's honing into in Genesis chapter 48. And so if you're taking notes, let's look at faith for the future now pivoting from Isaac over to the life of Jacob. We're going to discover three things about Jacob's life, his faith, and what it looks like for faith for the future at the end of our lives, into the future age, as well as in the present. And these are the three points. I'll give them to you up front and then circle back. Faith for the future first wrestles with God, secondly blesses with courage, and thirdly worships with hope. So in order, faith for the future first wrestles with God. Now in Hebrews chapter 11, we're given not the name Israel, we're given the name Jacob. You see that? By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. If you are new to the Bible, sometimes we can get lost in all the various characters. And so I want to slow down on this first point and orient you to who we are talking about here. Because when we think about God in the Old Covenant, and really even Jesus talks about God as being the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Those are those three patriarchs, right? Then sometimes we talk about God being the God of Israel. And Jacob and Israel are actually the same person Because often in the Bible, just like Abram was changed, was named to Abraham by God, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. So if you say Jacob or Israel, and the author of Hebrews says Jacob here, by faith Jacob, but when you flip back to the account, it says Israel, 
I think Jacob twice, like Israel, eight or ten times. At this point in his life, you could use either of those names, but he is largely known by his family and by the author of Genesis now as Israel, his new God-given name. Well, when God changes a name, there's usually something dramatic that happens in their life. And so that happened in Jacob's life. And we looked at briefly last week, it really wasn't about Jacob because we weren't staring at him. We were staring at his father, Isaac. But Jacob kind of sneaks into this family in some interesting ways that we're conflicted about, right? Because even when they couldn't have a baby for 20 years, he prays for his wife and there are twins in utero, Jacob and Esau, right? And there's sort of this battling and God reveals to the mom that there's two nations kind of warring in your womb and the older will serve the younger. And the firstborn comes out, Isaac or Esau, right? Esau, all hairy. I'm getting lost. Esau comes out all hairy and red and then Jacob comes out clasping on his heel, right? He's grabbing his heel. And for the rest of his life, he's kind of this heel grabber. And the name Jacob literally means supplanter or deceiver or schemer. And so, for example, he wants his brother's birthright. And one day when he's really hungry, he does a barter with them. He says, I got some stew here. And he's like, I'm starving. He says, well, sell me your birthright. He says, it doesn't matter if I'm dead. Sure, whatever. And that's how Esau despised his birthright and gave it over to his younger brother. And then at the end of his life, not his life, but his father's life as they bless them, mom gets in on this, clothes them with Esau's clothing. He smells like his brother. He feels like his brother. His dad is going blind and his dad blesses him instead of his brother. As you can imagine, at this point, Esau is furious when he discovers twice, twofold times, his brother has been this guy grabbing at his heel and taking his blessings away. And so his mom tells Jacob, you got to get out of town. Esau, after dad dies, is going to kill you. He goes far back to his homeland, his homeland of origin, that is, and eventually finds a wife and gets married there. And Laban, his father-in-law, that whole exchange between Uh, his wife, and he gets two wives, Leah and and Rebecca. And and in that interaction there, he grows a big family. He has lots of children there. He's blessed and eventually decides he needs to go back to Esau. And on his way back to Esau, and by the way, Laban kind of one-ups him too in kind of the the, uh, schemers. And so you have to go back to Genesis to read all of this. On his way back, he's deathly afraid of his brother. And his life is blessed, just like God revealed, and yet he's conflicted about meeting his brother, thinking his brother's going to hate him, and so he sends some different uh, bands in front of him with gifts and all sorts of things to try to make amends with his brother. And that night, he is distraught, he's wrestling, he's thinking about this return, and a man, an unnamed man, wrestles with Jacob. In Genesis chapter 32. What we find out is this is not just any person. This is God himself manifest in some sort of angelic presence or angelic person. And they are going at it into the late night. Into the evening and into the even the morning. Just wrestling back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And Jacob ultimately prevails. Though God touches his hip and displaces it. And so after that exchange he walks with a limp. 
And in that moment, he receives a new name from God, where he says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but your name shall be Israel, because you have fought or wrestled or striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Now, that's literally what the name Israel means, striven or strive. And so he's given this name of he's striven with God. He's a striver. He's he's a man that's wrestled with God, and he's prevailed. And he leaves that exchange a changed person. In fact, in Genesis, later in Genesis chapter 35, we're discovered that he puts away any of the household gods or idols in his home. He builds an altar to God there and worships God. And God renews the covenant that he gave with Abraham to bless him and to make him his offspring a blessing to the nations and to give him the land. It seems that at that moment, this is what's happened Jacob's whole life where he's been this heel chaser, right? Grabbing and deceiving and scheming his whole life. God has replaced that with a man who now wrestles with God with a limp, but prevails in his life. A man who puts away falsehood, who now walks in integrity. And a man who is now ready to shoulder the burden of the covenant and walk into the blessings of God. You know, it's been said it, it took a lifetime to learn to lean and not to scheme in his life. It took a lifetime to learn to lean and not to scheme in his life. He now leans on his staff and he now leans on God and he is done with scheming. The name Jacob represents his old way of life. The name Israel is the new name that God has given him. As we look at the blessing at the end of his life, he has a story. But I thought about his life and his story and saying, for the true believer, all of us have a story like this, right? Where we encounter God, not necessarily literally wrestling with God in the nighttime scheme, not literally getting knocked in our hip with a limp, but anybody who's embraced faith in God, the life of Jacob and really all the patriarchs says, faith is messy. Life is messy. Sometimes the heroes start to even look like the villains in a moment until God's grace intervenes in their life and brings about a transformation. You look at the life of the Apostle Paul, for example, and in the prior encounter, he is persecuting Christians and locking them up, and his total 180, this total transformation where he encounters the living God, and now he walks with a limp, if you will, for the rest of his life. With that as his backstory, but his very backstory is what forces a trajectory into the future that God has for him. What I would say under this first point is we think about faith for the future. If you don't have faith for the future, maybe first look at your present and look at the past and God's dealings with you. Because every one of us has to have that moment where we encounter the living God. Like Jacob cannot ride the coattails of Abraham's faith, right? He can't ride the coattails of his father Jacob's faith. He personally has to encounter the living God, have a transformation that changes the trajectory of his life. Just because they worship the one true God, he's still got a couple idols in his knapsack that he's got to put away, right? Just because they built an altar to the God of the universe doesn't mean that he could get away with just looking at their altars. He's got to build an altar himself. And just because the promises were pronounced over him, there's a point in his time where he has to lay claim to those and embrace them for himself. The same is true of you, my friends. Just because maybe your parents baptized you as an infant 
or maybe because they took vows over you, maybe because you grew up in the church, doesn't necessarily mean that you've embraced the promises of God and encountered him yet. We make those vows in faith that God will do a great work, and he does do a great work, but when in time has that happened in your life where you can look back and say, I have wrestled with God. He has changed me. And now today, yes, I walk with a limp, but I wouldn't change any of it because it's made me who I am. And it gives me faith for the future because of his dealings with me in the present and the past. If you don't have faith for the future, it might be because you've never encountered the living God like Israel. All of us, all of us must encounter the Holy Spirit. I love how John taught us to pray through Jesus' word, to receive the Holy Spirit, to encounter God personally in our lives. He experiences God. It makes all the difference. You guys have heard my testimony where I got saved out of that rock band with my twin brother, Matthew. And uh, it's made all the difference in my life. He's still playing the guitar up here, right? He's still doing it. God has redeemed even music in his life. God has redeemed even my, my speaking gifts, where I used to use it to speak evil and speak foul language and all of that. And now I use it to speak the name of Jesus. As you guys were singing the name of Jesus over here, the name Jesus just washed over me. And I literally started to tear up just hearing the name of Christ pronounced from your lips, the glory of that name. And that name was the name I heard as a child, but now that name means everything to me. Why? Because Jesus lives inside of me because of that encounter that I have and continue to have because he's broken into my life. And I had a wrestling with him. I had to wrestle with idols. I had to wrestle with the CDs in my backpack that were making a name for myself and take those out and stop pawning them on my t-shirts. Have you wrestled with God? And have you prevailed by him prevailing over you, right? The way you prevail is by God having victory in your life. When that happens in your life, the life of Israel is birthed for you. God gives you a new identity, and you are in Christ. Amen? The first thing we see with faith for the future, the faith that he has, is because he wrestled, and he wrestles with God. Secondly, faith for the future not only wrestles with God, encounters him personally, but secondly, blesses with courage. Faith for the future blesses with courage. Now, I've read Hebrews chapter 11 many times, and I think I just passed, have you ever passed over the Bible quickly thinking you know what it's saying, <laughs> and then realizing once you looked closer that you didn't know what it was saying? I just read over this over and over again. I've read Genesis over and over again. I just assumed that he was talking about the blessing over the 12 patriarchs in the next chapter, chapter 49. Then as I paused to study this more slowly, he says, no, 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 by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. I'm like, wait a second. He's not scoping in on the 12. He's scoping in on the two. And I went back and looked at Genesis chapter 48, which we did in our public reading of Scripture. I hope you're paying close attention because I don't want to have to reread all of this. But if you don't know the 12 patriarchs, we got these 12 sons, and the very younger one besides Benjamin is Joseph. And Joseph is sold by his brothers into Egypt because they don't like him. The coat of many colors, you guys remember that? He has dreams that the stars and everybody, the sun and the moon bow down to him and the, the wheat bow down to him. He shares that with his family. And would you believe that they're the characters bowing and that doesn't go over so well? Right? They're like, this 
this guy thinks he's so great. He thinks he's so important. So they sell him off to slavery in Egypt and take his clothes, dip it into animal blood, take it back to dad, say, dad, is this your son's? And his dad thinks he's dead. And he grieves a terrible grief over the loss of his young son there. Years go forward, famine hits the land. You guys know the story. Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh, saves up in the years of plenty for the years where there's not any rain and any food. And so there's a famine. Nobody has any grain except for the Egypt, Egyptians. Why? Because Joseph has been raised to a position of prominence. And he's been given a wife. He has children in Egypt through the Egyptians. And so Manasseh and Ephraim are not born with his uncles. They are born in Egypt. These are princes of Egypt. And at this point, Joseph is second in command to Pharaoh, only Pharaoh himself. Like he is running the kingdom essentially. And now his father, he, the brothers come in to get some grain. They rescue them. They bring them all in. So now all of the family of God have left the promised land, the promised region, and they're li living in Egypt, which is not where they're supposed to be, right? <laughs> but God uses that to save them. So all of this, and they're all bowing before him. The dreams are fulfilled. That is the characters now at the end of his life that Jacob is now blessing not his sons, his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who are born in Egypt, Joseph's sons. And he brings them and weeps and said, I never thought I would see you. And like his father in that picture before, he's kind of going blind. He can't see very well. His father lays them on his laps to pray for them. He puts his firstborn on his right lap, right knee, right? And his secondborn on his left because the right hand is the hand of prominence in your Bible and the left is second. And so his dad is ready for him to lay his hands on his older son, on Manasseh, who is the older, and his left hand, so left hand on Ephraim, the, the younger. But in that moment, Israel does one of these. And he crosses his arms to say the blessings over the boys. And the dad says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Joseph says, dad, 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 time out, time out. Your arms are crossed. Stop it. It displeased him. And he says, I know, son, I know. And then he pushes forward and blesses them that way nonetheless and says, the younger will be more prominent than the older, which, by the way, happened in his life as well, right? There's a, a reversal often in our Bibles. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now, this is still amazing. A few things you need to understand. He is essentially adopting these boys as his own. So he's giving the right of the firstborn to one of his youngest sons, Joseph, a double portion, and then he bestows on both of them equal shares in the inheritance. And so he's splitting them. He's basically bringing them as his own children, these children who are born in Egypt, but he blesses them, and I use the language of courage here because Joseph is not happy about this, right? Joseph is displeased. He, he doesn't want his dad to do this, but his dad knows the right thing. His dad has heard from God. His dad is speaking a blessing into the future that will happen. I mean, this is him prophesying over them, and the father does not like this. And by the way, the father's not just the son, right? He is the second most powerful man in Egypt, and he stands up against him and says, my son, I know. 
I know what I am doing in this moment. What courage would it take to be a, a feeble old man at the end of your life and stand up against the second in command in a foreign land and say, son, back down, stand down. I'm in charge here, not you. And he blesses these princes of Egypt, not with a blessing for Egypt, but a blessing for the promised land and folds him right back from the world into the people of God, into Israel and their blessings. Sometimes faith has to cross the wish and the will of your loved ones. Sometimes faith has to cross the wish and the will of your loved ones. I think the powerful thing at the end of these guys' lives is that they knew to do the right thing. Sometimes they stepped into the right thing despite themselves. But in this moment, he had learned his lessons about trying to do things through his own strength, his own intu intuition, his own ideas. And at the very end, he heard clearly from God. And even if it displeased the second most powerful man, possibly in the world at that moment, he's going to do the right thing. He's going to say the right thing. He's going to communicate the truth to his loved ones, to his heirs, to his offsprings, even if it gets him in the hot seat, even if it brings them displeasure. And I mean, this is beyond the scope of today's sermon, but if you want to check out the blessings he speaks over his other boys, I mean, some of them are awesome, you know, like Judah gets a good one, right? It sets him up to be the descendant to Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Reuben, ugh! You got to go study Reuben's life. He just basically, he's the firstborn. He calls him out and kind of just chops him out. He tells him the truth, though. The truth hurts. The truth stings, but the truth is still the truth. And the father has courage at the end of his life to speak truth over his heirs and truth into the future. At the end of our lives, will we be standing firm on the truth and for the truth? I'd recommend pre-planning as much of your funeral as you can and making sure that it preaches the gospel, that it preaches Christ, that it exalts Jesus. And obviously, I hope that your children love Jesus so much they just intuitively do that anyway. But we want to stand for the truth throughout our whole lives, especially to the end of our lives. And not only how we live, but how we die pleases God and what we speak in our living and how we speak in our dying. He blesses at the end of his life. He blesses with courage, and he speaks into a future that he won't live to see a reality that God has yet to give birth to in his heirs' lives. Faith for the future blesses with courage. Thirdly and finally, not only does he wrestle with God, bless with courage, but he worships with hope. Faith for the future worships with hope. Rounding out verse 21, the author writes, by faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship. See that? Bowing in worship over the head, over the head of his staff. Faith for the future worships with hope. Now, I want to reread Genesis chapter 47 just to fill this in with the details that I believe he's alluding to. Verse 29, it'll be on the screen. And when the time drew near that Israel, that's Jacob, remember, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. 
Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself, the language of bow is to worship, bowed himself in worship upon the head of his bed. Now there is some ambiguity here, and he bows on his bed, he bows on his staff, so there could have been some translation things going on, or here's the reality I think is most likely, he probably leaned on his staff, here's a guy with a limp, and bowed and worshiped on his bed at the end of his life. I think both are easily true. But either way, here's the picture we see at the end of his life. Not only is he speaking blessings with courage, sometimes saying the hard thing, but the right thing, but also he's worshiping God, not only in his strength and vigor and youth, but in his frailty, in his bed, towards the end, he is still worshiping the Lord. He's still bowing and worship, and this worship comes at an interesting spot that makes a lot of sense when you understand the narrative of your Bibles. Because he's saying, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you won't bury me in Egypt. Because remember, they're in Egypt right now. He's about to die. He's not getting embalmed and laid with the pharaohs, right? That is not the future he wants for his bones or for his offspring. He wants to be buried in the cave of Machpelah, right, with his ancestors in the promised land. He wants his body and his ancestors to go back to the land that God has promised to him. Now, a few things when you see him saying, put his hand under his thigh, that's kind of weird. We don't typically do that anymore, but that is something in your Bibles, for example. You see in Genesis chapter 40 or 24, remember when Abraham sends his servant Eleazar to go find a wife? He said, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. So it's essentially like in our day when somebody puts up their hands, left hand on the Bible, right? Right hand in the air. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. I don't know what it is about lifting this hand. Obviously, I know what's going on with the Bible. It puts the fear of God into any liars, right, you know? But you were putting your hand up. You say, yes, I could just promise. Oh, yeah, I promise. I could just swear. But when we are making a true confession, boom, right? Back then, it was boom, swear to me. So he's not only make a promise, make an oath, make a cup. You got to swear to me. You got to promise to me. He puts his hand under his thigh. And in that moment, when he swears to him, he can die in peace. And he bows in worship on his staff in his bed. And he worships the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and his God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. Say, like, well, why is he worshiping God in that moment? One, we should worship God in all of our lives. But his hope rests in the promises made to his ancestors, to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God promise them? The land and ancestors, as numerous as the stars, it's just starting to get started, that they would be a blessing to all the nations, but it doesn't happen in Egypt, right? It happens in the land that God promised him, where Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans to go to that land. He says, I need to go back to that place. We need to go back to that place. And when he says, you will not be buried in Egypt, you will be buried there, he worships God, because his hope is not in the world. Here's what you need to understand, Christian. Egypt and Babylon in your Bibles are always metaphors ultimately for the world. 
They're literal places, but our hope is not in Egypt, and our hope is not in Babylon. Amen? So these become metaphors. We got to leave Egypt. We have to leave the world. And though it became a place of protection, ultimately it became a place of slavery for them. And then they were delivered from Egypt back into the promised land. And all of this becomes a metaphor for us as Christians of the world and heaven and glory and the, the land that lies before us, the new heavens and new earth that we are traveling forward to. And so when he promises and he says, yes, my hope is not anchored in Egypt. My hope is anchored in the promises of God. And my bones are going there ahead of me. I'm going to the promised land. And for the Christian, our hope is ultimately not the sphinxes and the pyramids or any of that. It's saying my hope is anchored in heaven. And that the beginning of my life, the middle of my life, and the end of my life, that is where my hope is anchored. That's where my children, they're making swear to me that this is where we are going. This is where we are going, not only individually, but collectively. And he could die in peace knowing that they are going to the promised land, that they are claiming the promises of God for their life. Amen? Amen. Faith for the future worships with hope. My hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Where is your hope this morning, friends? What are you trusting in? What would allow you to die in peace and worship God at the end of your life? He looked to Zion. He looked to Canaan. He looked to the promised land and he said, that is where my hope is. Set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on heaven. Set your eyes on the new heavens and the new earth and you can worship God today and you can worship God at the end of your life with great joy throughout the rest of your life. Amen? One last thought as I invite the worship band up here. I've been thinking about these characters and how they speak into a future that, yes, has trials. I mean, Reuben's got some challenges ahead. There's some challenges. But there is a holy optimism for the generations before them and the generations yet unborn that God is in the future and God is faithful to them in the future. Amen? That as they die... They're not speaking doom over their future generations, but they're speaking blessings and hope and believing that God will be there for them just like he's been there for their generation as well. And we as Christians, I pray that you moms and dads, you project that onto your children as well. And grandparents, you speak that over the next generation. There are things in the future that our kids are gonna have to deal with that we didn't have to deal with in our generation. And they scare us at times. We see the world changing as they saw the world changing back then. But listen, God is faithful to our children, amen? And our children will encounter and wrestle with God in their own day. And they will walk with a limp, but they will be faithful to the covenant promises of God if we speak it over them and if we impart it to them faithfully as believers. May we, not only in this side of eternity, but to the very precipice of eternity, the very end of our lives, speak a holy optimism into the future. Speak a holy blessing upon our children. Speak the truth to them to the grave. And speak our hope in heaven to the very end. We can worship God. I'm 42. When I'm 82, if I make it to 92, will you still be worshiping at the head of your bed? Will you still be worshiping, leaning on your staff? Worship him. 
Worship him. Worship him now and worship him forever and trust him for the future of your children. Amen.